the Barna Group. They do polls of Christian America. So I got them actually to take those attitudes and actions of Jesus versus the Pharisees and poll Christian America. <laughs> okay, get ready. <laughs> Put my seatbelt on. Okay. Well, so 14% of Christians had both the attitudes and actions of Jesus. 51% had both the attitudes and actions of the Pharisees. And then, of course, the rest were in between. Hi, I'm Jim Daly, and that's Pastor John Burke sharing information from a shocking poll about the church today and the apparent blindness that some believers have to their own religious hypocrisy. I mean, that is tough to hear. I get it. But what a topic to talk about. And I'm so glad that you've joined me for the Refocus with Jim Daly podcast. I can't wait for you to hear a powerful discussion I had with John Burke recently about how we can start loving authentically like Christ did. And I love doing this podcast because I have the opportunity uh, to go a little deeper into the conversation with some fantastic guests about what's happening in our culture and how we as Christians can interact with others. We're in the world, but not of the world, of course, as it says in the Gospel of John. And I think this conversation with John Burke will shed light on how we find very natural opportunities to share our faith. I can remember a time I decided to have coffee with a gay activist, and I thought, you know, let's go to Starbucks, have a coffee, and just talk. Well, he brought about 14 pages of research on our website that he felt we were not accurate about when it came to the LGBTQ community. So, man, first of all, I just thanked him for taking the time, which was probably hours of research, to look at all that. So I took the paperwork and said, yeah, I'll take a look at it and have the team take a look at it. And then he began to really come at me about focus on the family being homophobic and hate-filled. And I was trying to tell him, you know, it's just not that way. We do believe in a biblical perspective on sexuality. And right in the middle of this discussion, it felt like the Lord just whispered in my ear to say, tell him I love him. Can you imagine that? I mean, I was sitting there going, are you sure, Lord? And sure enough, so I said to this man, I said his name, and I said, you know, I think the reason I'm here today is just to tell you one thing, and that is God loves you as much as he loves me. And he began to weep hard. And then I'm thinking, what do I do with this, Lord? And we're sitting in Starbucks. And so I just said, can you tell me what's going on? And he responded with, I just never thought a focus on the family employee would ever say to me that God loves me, a gay man. But it's true. God loves each and every one of us. And I think that really did put a crack in his heart in the right direction. And uh, not long ago, I did a program with Greg Kokel, and he was talking about some are there to uh, plant the seed, some to water, and then others to harvest. And he's a powerful apologist for the gospel. But he said to me during that program, I've never really led anybody to the Lord in 30 years. I'm more the seed planter and the water. And that's a great way to look at things too. You don't have to feel the pressure of having to close the deal in every discussion that you have. Moving back to John Burke, he has the gift of evangelism. He does a great job of demonstrating how you can share your faith in very tangible, loving ways. And you'll hear some of his incredible stories really about his neighborhood and the way he's influenced people around him that don't know the Lord. Uh, John's the pastor and founder of Gateway Church in Austin, Texas, where he lives with his wife, Kathy. 
They also have two adult uh, children, uh, both a son and a daughter. He's written several books. Today, we're going to cover Unshockable Love, How Jesus Changes the World Through Imperfect People. So if you're an imperfect person, I'm glad you're here at the table to talk with us. I believe he'll inspire you today. So let's get to it. Here's that conversation with John Burke on Refocus with Jim Daly. Um, you're passionate about sharing Christ with others. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, I think that's why you're a pastor now, not it an is. engineer, right? That's right. Um, h- how do you interpret the Great Commission that Jesus gave to his followers after his resurrection? Go to all the world. What was he talking about? Yeah, I think um, I think sometimes it's easy to miss God's great heart for every single person on the globe. Every person, every nation, doesn't matter where they're from. And um, that's what Jesus was all about. And that's the last thing he said. Let me ask you this, though. I mean, in our humanness, it's easy to put some people in this camp and other people in that camp. And I like this camp. Right. They're fun. They kind of believe the way I believe. Kind of easy to have dinner with. Then the other camp, they they really don't want to hang around with them. But that's not what the Lord is saying, right? No. It's comfortable. (laughs) Yeah. It's comfortable to be around people who are just like you. And all people gravitate that way. I mean, we all do. Mm-hmm. But I think the Lord and what he was saying, you know, when he said, go to all the nations, teaching them about me, um, I think what he was after is us realizing that there's, there's something beautiful as well in all of our differences and diversities that reflect... Because remember, we're, we're all made in the image of God. Mm. So there's something even about our differences and diversities that somehow together reflect the, the beauty of who God is. Yeah, I mean, that is really good. We are in a post-Christian culture now. I mean, Completely. there's not that cohesion around certain core values that maybe just 30 years ago, 20 years ago, we would have generally mostly agreed with. It's all fragmented now. No, I've watched it change during my lifetime. Right. Um, In that context, you've identified in the book, Unshockable Love, three elements needed for unbelievers to find faith in Christ. What what are they? Well, and it does have to do with um, the cultural changes that have happened. So you're right. I, you know, back in the 80s, um, we were mostly a Christian culture. That's not that long ago. It wasn't that long. I mean, as as I was, you know, growing up and going to college, and if you said, do you believe in God, we all had a common background of understanding of, oh, you're talking about the God of Jesus, and I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but... But there was there was a Judeo-Christian culture that we were growing up in. Well, that, that really has shifted. And what also shifted was that in the 80s, people longed for truth. It was right. kind of a flag. I remember it. You know, it's yeah. like, well, what's true? What's true? What's true? And proof and evidence, you know, it was kind of like we were coming out of our scientific enlightenment understanding. We can figure it out. What's right? What's true? Well, that did shift. And what started to happen is um, truth became relative. So, well, our group has a certain truth. And your group has a certain truth, but who's to say your group's truth is better than our group's truth? Right. And, and I say that to say that that is the culture that, that was the shift that happened really back in the 90s. And, and so we're way past that now. That's just an assumption. Now, the important thing there is that 
what I've found um, leading Gateway Church, which is which is a church that we you know we've seen five thousand people come to faith in Jesus out of every background imaginable, every religious background, every lifestyle mm. background, and what I've found is that people often take a, a a common pattern. So they meet a Christian who is actually like Jesus toward them, which we can talk more about that later. Yeah, we will. But, but it is, has the attitude of Jesus toward them, for them, I might say. You know, they get the sense that this, this person likes me. Mm. They care about me. They see something in me. And when I'm around them, I, I feel important to them. Um, so that's one. And that, that Christian person shares a faith with them. But the second thing is they've got to get to know a, what I call a tribe of people. So who are their other Christian friends? And as they get to know those other Christian friends, it's more like a tribal decision. You know, if you go to tribal cultures, when one makes a decision to start following Christ, it's usually done together right. in a group mm -hmm. because they have a group identity. Well, in some ways, that's kind of how people come to faith today. Meaning, it's not necessarily that they bring their whole group to faith. It's that they've got to have friends that they're going to. So I'm not going to leave my friends who don't believe anything about Jesus, you know, we're just partying and having fun, to leave them to belong with this group that believes in Jesus when I don't know who this group is. So getting to know friends who are also Christians and having them be their friend isn't also an important part of people coming to faith. Mm. And then the third one is having a safe space where they can learn the dangerous truths of the scriptures, where they can learn God's story. Um, I find that it takes people anywhere from six to 18 months of just learning before they ever come to faith. They've got to understand, because we, we truly live in a post-Christian world. They don't know who Abraham was or these different Bible names or, right. I, I, you know, I've gotten, I've had people ask, you know, when you're quoting chapters and verses and they're like, what, you know, what is that? They don't know. And, and so helping them just be in a safe place where they can understand the story of God and what God was doing through Jesus to make a way back to the heart of God. You know, uh, the person listening who may not have a relationship with Christ um, is thinking, okay, this sounds like it could be manipulation. You know, you get yourself together with a bunch of your friends and they try to convince you that what Jesus said and did and who he was is all true. And yeah. the proof is, hey, look at my friends. It's really not the goal. It's just that community of believers should be a convincing witness about what they believe. Well, it's what Jesus called us. He called, he called the church his body. Now think about that. If we really are his body, then we should be showing people what God is like through us together. Mm -hmm. Just like Jesus did in his physical body. He was showing what the unseen God is like live, living out among people. So he actually literally wants us to do the same thing. Which means we've got to have the attitude and actions of Jesus, but the, the community part is important because I think at the end of the day, when people aren't searching for truth as a first and primary thing, they are searching for love. Everybody. Yeah. And so if, if a community of followers of Jesus aren't loving, then why would they want to 
Why would they want to That's follow true. this I've Jesus? I've never heard that, that testimony that, you know, the Christians were so mean to me and they treated me so poorly, I decided to become one of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've just never heard that testimony. No. Right? Yeah, but you've heard the other, Correct. right, a lot. They were that, so loving and kind. Yeah. I couldn't and, and, understand and it. Actually, that was, that was an aha for me. Mm. Um, I had an aha when I was living in California and I, I, was, I was talking with a guy who was not a Christian and... Um, you know, I love apologetics. I love re- analytical engineering mind. So I love the reasons, right? And so he agreed to meet with me, and we, we were going to uh, talk through faith issues. And I started going through all the reasons I believe and, you know, trying to convince him. And, and um, you know, he'd push back, and we'd go, and I'd, and I'd argue him down and this and that. And by the end of it, he said, okay, I see. I see what you're saying. I said, great. So... You want to follow Jesus? And he goes, no. And I said, well, why not? A plus B equals C. You know, it makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, it makes sense. Well, why not? He said, because I guess I just don't want to be like you. <laughs> Ouch. It's exactly right. Yeah. But it was also God's wake-up call to me. Yeah. Like, okay, you know what? Maybe I'm not actually stewarding the heart of God for people well. Hmm. Maybe I'm actually making it about me. And you can be manipulative when you make it about you. Like, because that's, that's, not, the, the, that's not what we're trying to do. Right. Um, you know, as, as one person said, we're more like one beggar telling another where to find bread. Right? You know? It's good to remember it that way. Yeah, that, that we're, we're trying to help people see that God is for them, not against them. Mm. And he's done everything possible to remove every barrier between them and himself. Yeah, and sometimes we become the barrier. Self-will. Right? And that's not... Yeah, we, you know, we, we, we end don't up being want the to impediment. be the barrier. Yeah. You have a, uh, an example of a couple from Branson, Missouri, who really begin to demonstrate this kind of love to people. I mean, it, it's so simple, but so profound. What, what occurred with them when they started to feed people? You're talking and, about Brian and Amy? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Brian, Brian and Amy, um, they just worked in business, you know, normal Christians going to church, and um, they had both been divorced and remarried, and so they actually weren't allowed to serve in their church. And so they were having some issues there, so they were like, well, Jesus wants us to serve people. And so they started praying, who can we serve? And then they, in, in Branson... Um, it's a very interesting place. Been there many times now, but it's you know it's an entertainment capital kind of place. But the people who work in the entertainment industry are the working poor, hmm. and they live in these extended stay motels for the most part and move around. And there's a lot. It's meth capital there, hmm. believe it or not. Yeah. And and you wouldn't think that in Branson, but it is. And so the, these kids and these families just struggling. And they, they saw that and they decided, you know what, let's just, let's do a Thanksgiving cookout for this one motel, extended stay motel. And they did. And they started to meet people and actually get to know them and heard their stories and it, it moved their heart. And um, so they came back and were just visiting and they said, you know, the, the people down the hall are really struggling. They could really use some help. So they packed up a sack lunch and took it down the hall to him and befriended him. And then they said, 
They told them someone else who could really use some help. Well, long story short, they just start serving like this and meeting these people and bringing just food or different help things. And they realize that these people have physical needs, but really their spiritual needs are, are even greater. They need to know how God feels about them. So they had, uh, had read a book I wrote, No Perfect People Allowed, talking about how Jesus entered into the mess and people's messiness, right? And so they contacted us and said, hey, you know, help us figure out how to do this. And, um, and we said, well, come to one of our gatherings where we, where we teach pastors. And they said, well, we're not pastors. I'm like, it's okay, just come. This is funny because they are pastors today. <laughs> and, and so they came. Well, long story short, they, they started just, just hosting um, opportunities for these people to come together in the motels and talk about faith. They would show videos. They would lead discussions. It grew and grew. They ended up getting volunteers to help us well. At, at the high point, um, they were bringing 1,300 meals a week. Oh my goodness! Uh, to to all the, the 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 motels around, they saw hundreds of people come to faith in Christ. Hundreds of people come out of addiction. They help people who were either homeless or in these jobs, just spinning, go through a Jobs for Life program they put on, and ninety percent keep a job for more than two years afterwards. Wow! So and all that started by just saying, Lord. How can we be like you to the people around us? And you never know what God's going to do. That's a it's big crazy. Op opportunity, right? When you yeah. say that to the Lord, he'll say, okay, yeah. I'll use you. He'll test you on yeah. it. He'll give you an opportunity. One of the things you mentioned in the book is building um, a network, building a network for the significance of sharing the good news. Speak to that concept of building a network. Well, it's really, it's really just thinking about what Jesus did. So... Jesus brought 12 people together, plus you know, Mary mm -hmm. Magdalene, Joanna, Mary. There were, there were a larger group of people, and they went into the villages. They went to weddings. They, um, they served people. They healed. They proclaimed the good news. They just went into the world. And I think one of the things that that churches are missing many times is, is a way to help people just go into the world together. And that's what we mean by network. It's, it's networking, it's Christians networking with people who are, are not necessarily church or don't know the Lord and just building relationship, loving them, serving them when opportunities come up. Yeah. Share Christ. Part of that may be a little bit fear-based, you know, it takes you into an unknown place where you're have to, having to risk time. It's not that hard. I know, but I'm, just, I'm trying to portray yeah. it from the person that might find it difficult. Um, yeah. You know, they're just, it, it, you feel like there's too many hurdles there. I've got to run the kids to this. I've got to do that. I've got to coach soccer. I got to, you know, there's lots of reasons you can fill in your day. Well, let me tell you a story that I think is a great, a great example of how it can be the things you already do and the things you already love to do. Um, so there was this couple, Doug and, and Rosie, who moved to Austin, Texas, where I live, from um, Arizona. They had been involved in the drug culture in Arizona. They moved to Austin to get away from that because they had two young kids. Um, 
and their marriage was kind of on the rocks. So they get to Austin. Doug's business starts taking off, doing great. Their marriage is not doing well. They're new. They're trying to you know, figure things out. A guy at work invites Doug to play softball, and he loves softball. So he starts playing softball with these guys. Then he finds out that some of them are Christians, go to a church together. He grew up going to church, and then when he met Rosie, and you know, they hooked up and started doing drugs and all this, and he kind of faded. Well, at the same time, Rosie... Uh, meets some women at their preschool who are meeting up in a park. They all have young kids, so they're just meeting up in a park to let the kids play and enjoy some time together. So she starts doing that to make friends. She finds out that they're, some of them are Christians, and she's an atheist because, because Rosie was abused as a child, and she couldn't possibly imagine a God who would love her and yet allow that to happen. And that's what turned her to atheism. So she's kind of pushes back on them and lets them know she's an atheist. And they love her. They're just like, you know, okay. And so she really likes them. And she keeps going. Well, one night Doug has a dream. And in the dream, someone invites him to church. And he says yes. And in the dream, he ends up at this church. And they say, do you just want to watch? Or, or do you want to be a part? And he says, be a part. And he, he finds himself in the middle of this thing. And the next day, he goes and plays softball, and they invite him to come to church. <laughs> and because he had that dream, he's like, okay, I'll go. Yeah. Okay, well, he goes home expecting to have a major fight, you know, just knock down, drag out with Rosie, who never wanted anything to do with church or God at all. The weird thing is, that same week, Rosie's friends had invited her to go to their church and because she liked them so much and didn't want to disappoint them, she had said yes to them. Mm-hmm. So Doug and Rosie end up fighting about whose friends matter more and which church are we going to. <laughs> <laughs> so Doug was a salesman, and uh, he won. And so they're driving in that Sunday morning to Doug's friend's church, and Rosie goes, your friends go to Gateway Church? My friends go to Gateway Church. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> True story. I'm not making it up. Uh, they had both encountered what we call networks of Christians just doing life together and inviting friends who might not know the Lord to be a part of it. And they started coming. And, and so they had friends. They had someone who, you know, showed them what Jesus is like. And then they started learning at our church in a safe space to understand the gospel, to understand what, what Christ had done. And six months later, Doug gave his life to Christ uh, a year and a half later. Rosie did. And they both became leaders in our church at the center of everything. Oh, that's amazing. Isn't that crazy? That is, that's but a great story. It is a great story. But my point is, it's not that difficult. It, you know, I, I love soccer. I still, I still play soccer. And I, I, I use it as an opportunity just to get to know people that, you know, live in the world and do the things of the world. They're not in my church. Um, but it's such a great opportunity. And in fact, when, when we first started Gateway Church, my wife and I coached our kids' soccer team. So we got to know all the, all the people on it when they found out I was a pastor, like, no way, you know? And there was this one guy who would always, you know, just make crass jokes at me, you know, just to get me. And I'd just joke back, you know, and we would just have fun. Well, what was wild is that over the course of five years, between our neighborhood and that soccer team, 24 
parents and kids started coming to our church and got baptized for faith in Jesus. Mm. But it, it's just loving people. It's just showing them right. how God actually feels about them. It's not, it's not trying to get them to change. What we're really doing is we're just saying, this is what I found. And look, you can have it too. And that's, it is just doing it. Uh, you point out in the book that most of our problems in the world are relationally driven. That's what, what's at the core. And if that's the case, A, why is it so? Why is on the relationship side kind of the core reason that we're divided? And then culturally, how does that apply with division? Well, and I think it also applies to why, why people come to God when they see relationships done differently. Okay. It should be it should be different. Yeah, but if you think about it, so, you know, we all grew up in families and there's no perfect families. So families are also where we got wounded. We grew up in communities. There's no perfect middle school. <laughs> yeah, no. Right? I yeah. mean, there's no perfect playground and and this is where we got wounded. We got wounded in community. And we all set up barriers, we set up um mechanisms to try to prove our worth or know that we're loved or get security. And those are all the wounds that we are, are working out of. And that is what the gospel is all about. Jesus en- enters the world of humanity and, and connects us back to the source of love and relationship. So that as we allow God to, then to lead us, he can restore what's been lost relationally in the world around us. That's exactly what he's doing. That's why, that's why Moses and Jesus both said, first commandment, love God. Second commandment, love your neighbor. Love the people around you. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to bring relationship back together. You used the term relational momentum in reference to Zacchaeus. How, how does that fit together? How does relational momentum work with the illustration of Zacchaeus? Yeah, well, we talk about relational momentum as, as a way of just building relationships with, with people, you know, who aren't a part of your church or may not know the Lord, because this is exactly what, what Jesus did. You know, when, when I wrote Unshockable Love, what I was doing is I was doing a study of the Gospels, of, of what Jesus' attitude was and what his actions were toward the world around him. And, and when I did it, it, what fascinated me is seeing the contrast of the religious people around Jesus. So the Pharisees' attitude and actions versus Jesus' attitude and actions. And the Pharisees, for instance, would, would see somebody who did not meet their moral standards or their religious standards or theological standards, whatever it might be, and they would devalue that person and they would distance themselves relationally. Right? Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons that they called Jesus a glutton, a drunk, and a friend of sinners. Think about that. <laughs> That's quite a label, right? right? They called him that not because he was any of those things, but because he cared about those people. He built relational momentum with them. So here's Zacchaeus. Jesus, it says in the scriptures, is going passing through Jericho. Mm-hmm. When he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree, everybody's crowding. They want to see him. Zacchaeus is up in the tree. Now, Zacchaeus is a little gangster. He is hated <laughs> by everyone. I mean, he, you know, he's a crook. He's robbed most of the town blind. They can't stand him. 
And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I, I think Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, was prompted. Jesus, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to stay at your house tonight. Right. So he invites himself to spend the night. <laughs> Just all impromptu. <laughs> yeah, impromptu. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and what we see in the story, though, is that Zacchaeus' heart changes, obviously, mm -hmm. right? And Jesus says, this is why I came, to seek and save what was lost. What's, what's lost? Well, God, one of God's children, one of the people God created for himself was lost, and now he's found. And that started by relationally moving toward Zacchaeus, where all the religious were moving away from him. Yeah, I, that is an excellent point. When you look at the New Testament, it seems if you look at it like uh, billboard signs, the two that jump out at me is one, salvation through Christ and Christ alone, and don't become a Pharisee. <laughs> Those are kind of the two billboards, right? It is. But we, yeah. we really we emphasize the first, the importance of salvation through Christ and in Christ, but we do ignore not becoming a Pharisee. Well, it's, and it's interesting because after I wrote Unshockable Love, and it is all about the attitudes and actions of Jesus versus the attitudes and actions of the Pharisees. So uh, you're familiar with the Barna Group? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Kinnaman. Yeah. So, researcher. Yeah, researcher. They do polls of Christian America. So I got them actually to take those attitudes and actions of Jesus versus the Pharisees and poll Christian America. Okay, get ready. <laughs> Put my seatbelt on. Okay. Well, so 14% of Christians had both the attitudes and actions of Jesus. 51% had both the attitudes and actions of the Pharisees. And then, of course, the rest were in between. Now, now here's what I would say. It's not a black and white. It's a, it's a grayscale, and we all slide one way or the other yeah. a lot. Throughout month, the day. Month to month, maybe throughout <laughs> the day. Um, you know, if you think about some of the ways Jesus treated people or his actions, you know, he, he ate with people. Uh, you know, Matthew was a tax collector and invited all his partying friends, and he's, he's eating with them, you know? So we could ask ourselves a question, when was the last time I did that, right? Well, that's an action of Jesus. So there are things like that, right? And, um, and, and I think what's important is to recognize that we don't ever intentionally become pharisaical. Correct. We slide into it, hmm. and we do. And so in that context, how do, you, how do you kind of step back and realize what you're stepping towards so you don't move in that direction? Obviously, the Pharisees, we do a series with Ray Vanderlaan that the world may know, and one of the points that he makes is the reason they were so zealous about following the law is that they believed it would keep them out of captivity again. Right. That coming out of Egypt, that the reason that God had them in bondage is because they couldn't keep the commandments. Morality so and now, decadence. Now and... we're going to double down. We're right. going to work even harder to to keep the law right. so that God doesn't put us in a bad place again. Right. And so the motivation wasn't necessarily bad. Exactly. But and that's key. Execution. Well, I would say priority. And understanding how do people actually change. This is, this is critical. Because if you think about it, if people actually change by keeping the law or being told they're not keeping the law or being condemnation engineered to try to get them to keep the law, we wouldn't need Jesus. Jesus is superfluous. 
because we could somehow do it by the law. But that's actually not the message of the New Testament, right? The message of the New Testament is that we all fall short. And without God's help, without God walking with us, we don't become who God intended us to be. Why? Well, because God intended us for relationship with himself and then with one another. So the law, is morality, is not the main point. Now, does God want us to be moral? Yeah. Why? Because it's loving. Because <laughs> it's, right. it's kind toward people. Not duty. It's kind toward ourselves. Right. It's not duty. But what when we understand that the way people actually change is when they get reconnected to the source of life and love, you know, when they get reconnected to the one who by his spirit can produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, naturally in us. That's how people actually change. And, you know, there's, a, there's that great passage in um, Galatians chapter 5 where it says, walk by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Instead, the fruit of the Spirit that I just named will grow in you and, and it grows naturally. Mm-hmm. It's the same exact thing Jesus was trying to get across this last night on earth when he said, guys, I'm the vine, I'm the trunk of the tree, you're the branches. You know, a branch can't produce fruit if it gets disconnected from the trunk of the tree. So just stay connected to me and you will grow healthy, good fruit naturally. But disconnected to me, nothing. Yeah. And so it's so simple. Well, where this comes into play, though, is when we interact with people who don't know the Lord, we have to be willing to see past, you know, the whatever moral issues or lifestyle issues or theological issues, because the main issue is helping them reconnect to the source of love and joy and life so that they too can see fruit grow naturally. So true. I'm just thinking about the difficulty that we have in doing that because we tend, I think, because that person is not living up to a standard that we create, right? Yeah. Then we look down upon them. Yes. And that prevents us from looking for the future yeah. for them. I, I, there's an analogy I like to use that, um, that I think is the why, and it, and it can help us. Um, my wife and I lived in St. Petersburg, Russia for a year. And my favorite place to go was the Hermitage Museum because Rembrandt's famous painting of the return of the prodigal son is, is hanging there. It's worth millions of dollars. It's the, it's the original. And um, it's my favorite painting because that, you know, that's Jesus' story in Luke 15 when all the religious leaders were complaining that all these sinners were coming to listen to him. And he told them the three parables, one of which was the prodigal son and the father running to the prodigal son, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is the painting of the, of the father hugging the son when the son is broken down on his knees. So imagine if, you know, you were in St. Petersburg, Russia, and you're, you're walking around out back, and you see there in a dumpster Rembrandt's famous painting of the prodigal son, but it's torn, it's stained, it's covered in mud. Would you treat it like mud? Would you treat it like trash? Or, or, or would we know that's still worth millions? It needs re- restoration, but it's still worth millions. And we all know, we would, if we knew that's 
the truth, that was the original from the master. We would know it needs to be gently taken to someone who can restore it to its original value. So if we can see that in a painting, why can't we see that in a person? Hmm. Yeah. God, God told us in Galatians, um, in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace that we have been saved, which just means set right with God, when we actuate it through faith, right, by faith. It's not of ourselves, so we can't boast. It's, it's something God did. And then it says, why? For we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works he planned for us long ago. Now, we all know if we've come to faith in Christ that that's true about us. But if he saw us as his masterpiece that he had planned for these good works long ago, why would we think he doesn't still see that in our neighbors, Mm. in people who, you know, morally or ethically or whatever are not what we would agree with? John, you mentioned the fruit of the Spirit. Of course, that love, joy, peace, goodness, gladness, kindness, mercy. I remember talking to a secular Jewish person who's in the cultural battle and leans to the right, especially with education, what's happening in education. And he said to me, Jim, don't you know you're, you're in an alley fight and the other side has switchblades? These people are nasty, those on the left who are fighting. And I said, oh, we get that. We understand that. But the weapons that we get to use are love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness. And he, I remember he leaned back and he said, wow, those aren't very good weapons. so speak to that idea that as the culture even grows darker the tendency that we have to fight with the fleshly weapons Mm. which aren't going to produce spiritual fruit Mm -hmm. and how do we stay disciplined to use the tools that god has given us and in that context let me just uh, a scripture that somebody told me about hebrews 10 34. This kind of blew my mind about the sacrifices that we need to think about. Um, It said, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Mm. Have we read that? I mean, that? Seriously? Yeah. The Lord's saying, lay it all down. Yeah. Because this doesn't matter. It doesn't last. It doesn't. Yeah. John, are you hearing that? Yeah. So yeah. speak to that kind of conundrum that we have when our flesh wants to fight out of worldly weapons, yeah. like knock them down, right. versus the godly weapons of the fruit of his spirit. Well, I think, I think it comes back to being able to see in that person somehow what Jesus sees. Because if you think about it, People can innately sense how you actually feel about them. Mm -hmm. They can. I mean, communication is 10% verbal, they tell us. The rest of it is body language, it's tone, it's attitude. I mean, this is, this is why you get in a fight with your spouse, <laughs> you were not bring, you guys. You were going to bring that up, weren't you? Just <laughs> you, think of your marriage. <laughs> when you, get a, you get in a fight with your spouse, and you're like, I did not say that. Yes, you did. Well, that's not what I meant. You know, well, you know, communication. But that's true when we're talking with someone and it's getting tense, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Is if we, can, if we can picture that God sees something in this person that's worth dying for. That's how he valued them. Worth dying for. So can I lay down whatever ego thing is in my way right now and think about 
how much how God feels about that person and what what He wants for that person. And I, it does. It disarms. It's like judo, you know. It's like it, all the weapons go falling to the ground. Yeah, it's yeah. an amazing thing. John, I want to I want to hit something that we touched on a minute ago, and that is the busy phase of life. You quoted in the book a, a study from Princeton about busyness, mm. and share with the listeners how that unfolded. Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is we we all can get busy, and busyness might be our greatest enemy. Um, a fascinating study was done. Um, I think his name was Batson. Uh, he did it with, with um, divinity students. And what they did is they, they set up two groups of, of students, and they told them that you're going to go and preach a message. And so they gave them a message to prepare, and it was, um, it was actually the message about the Good Samaritan, you know, who, who is on his way, you know, and these priests go by and they see this guy battered and bruised and beaten on the side of the road and they pass right by. And then the Samaritan's the only one who, who helps them, right? Samaritan being the average person. No, no. The Samaritan would be like the outcast in that Jewish culture. Even better. Yeah. He is the, the unlikely hero of Jesus' story. Okay, so these seminary students are asked to prepare a message on the Good Samaritan. Now, before that, they had asked them, why do you want to go into ministry? And, and you know, the majority of them said to help people, right? So then they, they put one more variable. They told them when they got ready that they were going to go across the campus to a certain building, and then they were going to do their message there. And so right before each one would leave, they would say one of two things. They would either say, oh, well, you're early, but why don't you make your way on over there? Or, oh, you're late. You better hurry. Head on over there now. Okay, those two things. Now, here's what they found. <laughs> what they found <laughs> is that the ones who said, you're late, you better hurry, literally when they, they planted a guy in an alleyway that they had to walk through, who was literally like the beaten, bruised guy on, on the side of the road, and he's sitting there looking like, you know, just a homeless person, help. but hurt and needing help and moaning. And literally almost every single one that was in a hurry passed right by, whereas those who weren't in a hurry stopped to help. And here are the people who are giving their lives to help people but the simple thing of busyness could make them not do it. That's a powerful point. I mean, right? Yeah. And we could get so busy that we're not able to see the opportunities the Lord is giving us. Well, and that's why I think it really starts in a very simple way. I think many times Christians get hung up thinking, well, I won't do it right, you know, talking about trying to share their faith or answering people's questions or all that. You don't, you don't have to worry about that. We get hung up on that. The, the, the main thing you should do is start praying. Just start praying for your neighbors around you and watch what God does. And when the opportunity comes, don't be afraid to tell them about what he's done in your life and how he feels about them. Yeah. Let me tell you uh, just a, a recent story I had like this. So I, I'm going to, there's this great app called um, Bless Every Home. Have you ever, you ever I seen don't it? think so. It's awesome. Um, because it, it basically helps you just daily pray for your neighbors. 
and it brings up five of your neighbors. You can put other people in. I put my soccer team in as well. And I pray for five names every day. And I just pray for them. I pray for God to bless them in different ways. But there was this one guy who is, lives down the street from me that I've been praying for. His name was Sai, Sai and Preeti. And my, my, by the way, my, my street, uh, 31 homes, 19 of them are internationals. Okay. That's my street. Right. Okay. And um, so I'd been praying for Sai and Preeti, but I'd never met him. It had been like a year. And I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, I really just help me meet them. I've been praying for them, but I haven't, I haven't met them. I'm not kidding. When I started praying that, two weeks later, I walk my dog and, you know, meet people on the way. And we always go left. For some reason, my dog went right. So I just follow. Turns out Cy and his kids are out playing uh, in the street. Mm. I introduce myself. Find out he's from Rajamundri, the very place our church built a hospital. We start talking. Well, long story short, we, we got to be friends. We go to lunch. We hang out. We see each other at neighborhood parties. He, he, you know, he found out I was a, a pastor. Well, when his friend was dying, he came down to ask me, what could I do? Because an Indian custom is to do something charity-wise on their behalf of a friend who's dying. And he asked me what, what he could do. And we started talking about it. Now, he happened to come down on the day that Kenneth and Vanola, my other neighbors, are over. And I'm, I'm showing them What's After Life, a book about what happens after death. <laughs> and I'm literally showing them when he knocks on the door and he comes in. And so I, he told me about this. And I said, you should give her this book. And so he, he ends up giving her the book and he comes back the next time we had lunch, he said, I gave her that book. And after she read it, she had so much more peace about dying and she felt like she was right with God. Now, you just don't know what's going to happen. And Sai and I are continuing to have conversations about faith and about God and, you know, so you just <laughs> you just have to start praying and, totally and stay good. open. Yeah, absolutely. You, you have, I mean, as we're hearing, you've got so many great stories about God and how God's working in people's hearts around you. And that can be true for anybody. Your church uses a motto, which I love. Many churches use, come as you are. But you add, come as you are, but don't stay that way, or something like that. Is that but don't stay as you are. Yeah. But don't stay yeah, as you are, which I think is really important, mm -hmm. right? It's not just about sitting in one spot no. in your spiritual non-growth and being comfortable with it. It's well, about, and, and it's the timing of it, too. Yeah. Because at first, people do just yeah. need to come as they are. They, they're overwhelmed. They don't know how to change necessarily, and right. they, or don't know if they want to. But the point will be, you will change over time. Well, and that's why we say that. What we say is, you know, because our, our other motto is no perfect people allowed. Right. And, and so what we say is, look, there are no perfect people, and we all know that, but that means we all still have a ways to grow to become the people we know we were intended to be. Yeah. So, yeah, come as you are, but let's help each other grow to be all God intended. Let me ask you to share the story of Rebecca in this context, because I think this is one of the hardest issues in the culture, LGBTQ. We all know what that means and all the conflict, the court cases, mm -hmm. the cultural battle that seems to be going on between religious liberty and uh, gay rights. Mm -hmm. But Rebecca came to your church. Tell us about her. 
Well, yeah, someone invited um, Rebecca and, and she said, no, they wouldn't want me there. And, uh, and they said, no, it's, the motto is come as you are. And she said, well, I bet come as you are unless you're a lesbian. And he said, well, just come. Mm -hmm. And so she did. She came, but she brought a girlfriend with her. And they would sit on the front row. And they would rub each other's legs and do all kinds of things to make sure I saw. Right. <laughs> and it was Sending tough. you a signal. Sending me signal. And they, would, and they would introduce themselves to people in our church and make sure they said right away, you know, I'm gay. And and they were what they were testing. They were mm -hmm. watching for reaction, and they were trying to get a reaction. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they didn't really get a lot of reaction, but they actually did get people seeming to care about them. Her friend didn't didn't care, so she stopped coming. But Rebecca kept coming because she didn't she didn't believe in God and she didn't want God, and she didn't want to change her lifestyle. But something was missing. And there was something about the people she was meeting. So she kept coming, kept coming. And what she told me is it was like, it was kind of like I was down here on one row. She uses the analogy of our auditorium. I was down here on one side of the, of the aisle and Jesus is over on the other side of the aisle. And week by week, I just moved one seat, one seat until finally she said, I gave my whole self to Jesus. Now, here's the thing that's amazing is that we never talked to her about her lifestyle at all. She started learning to trust Jesus. And I watched Jesus do the most amazing healing work in her life. So after year one, so you know, we encourage people to be in small groups, relational community, where there's love and acceptance and truth, because we're going through the Bible and we're talking about it. And how do you live this out? And so she was able to you know, talk openly about these different kinds of things. And during that time, she found out her dad had had eight affairs while she was growing up. She never knew that. Hmm. She never knew he had a sexual addiction. But she always had, knew there was something off. Yeah. Well, then year two, she's in a seminar that we were holding. And during the seminar, she has a flashback of a memory that had completely blocked from her, been blocked from her mind. When she was getting off the school bus in the eighth grade and there was a bully in the neighborhood, a young teenager who was always mean to her, and this day he was nice to her. And he said, I'm really sorry for the way I've treated you. Come over, I wanna, I wanna give you a, a present. I wanna make it up to you. And she's eight. She follows him into his house, the door slams, three teenagers gang rape her. She had completely blocked that out of her mind. It, it comes back. And what, what God was showing her is that she had grown up in an evil world abusing her, learning that her femininity is dangerous. Hmm. But he was healing that. He was going back to the roots that she didn't even know the roots of. And she told me, you know, that same-sex attraction is not an issue for her anymore. She has other issues. She has other struggles. But that's not. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's all, always the way it works. You know, I, we have other people in our church who, you know, they, they gave their life to Christ and they're following him and they're honoring him sexually, but they still struggle with attraction. Mm -hmm. So it's not always a, a cookie cutter thing. But the point I'm making is that 
God knows where people come from, and He knows how to get them to where He wants them to go. Well, and, back, and we don't. Yeah, and back to the brokenness that this world is all about broken people, and how do we, as Christians, become as healthy as we can in Christ? Right. Not in some you know new age kind of thing. No. But in Christ, in a biblical context, and then how do we then turn and help others? Yeah. find that same healing. And we, we help people as wounded healers. Right. That's critical. Right. So when we, when we think we're here and don't need any healing and you're down here, that just means we're still deceived. Right. Because Jesus came to heal, to bind up our brokenness. Yeah. You know, and uh, we've all been wounded. Nobody gets out free. John, for the person who's going, okay, I, I resonate with what you're saying. I am a busy person. I probably haven't given this much attention or enough attention at all. What are some things they could do differently tomorrow, tonight, that could begin to change actually their enthusiasm for their faith? Because they'll start to see the Lord really move. Oh, that's the thing. That's, what... that's the thing, Jim, <laughs> is like... You want to grow your relationship with God, start trusting Him. And here's how you trust Him. Just say, Lord, I want to be a witness for you. And start praying for the people He's already put in your life. He's already put people in your life. They're at work. They're on the Little League field. They're in your neighborhood. They're in your neighborhood. Yeah. You can walk your dog. You know, it's, I mean, there are all kinds of ways. Start praying. And then, you know, think about the person of peace. So Jesus, you know, Jesus said, go into the village, and if there's a person of peace that opens up to you, go there, stay there. So as you, as you do this, you're, you're getting to know people, you're planting seeds, and then when you see that kind of opening of a person of peace, then build relational momentum there, right? Find ways to serve them. Find ways to care about them. Mm. Um, and when, when the opportunity comes... Just start to tell them how God feels about them. You know, and it, the Holy Spirit will tell you when. I, a great example, um, my wife and I were at a party on our block, kind of our first big post-COVID party. And all our neighbors are there. And we've been getting to know our neighbors, and we've had, you know, different conversations with them. Um, but my next-door neighbor, who are, who are both Hindu, he's uh, an AI engineer so he's got his own artificial intelligence company very smart guy and um we're there we're there talking to them and it just so happens they they find out they didn't know that i had studied a thousand people who have clinically died you know and written a book on it and when they found out he was like oh my gosh my respect for you has just gone through the roof I'm like, really? <laughs> <You're right. laughs> you know? And and so I, I just like, okay, door open, you know? And so I started sharing with him about, you know, when people encounter God, how much he loves them. And I just started telling them, you know, there's only there's only one God he created us all. And man, the crazy thing is you can't believe how much he loves you and how much he understands you and how he 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 wants to be like a best friend to you. And and they, you know, and they and they said, "Oh yeah, we all we all believe in the same God." Maybe. Right, right. But but hey, you you know what? You do what Paul did when he went into Athens. Hey, I see you're a very religious people. This is Acts chapter 17, right? He sees all these idols. They're worshiping all these idols, but he sees one that says to the unknown God. And he starts there. 
let me tell you about the unknown God you worship. And he builds a bridge mm -hmm. to what God's done through Jesus. So we, we can do the same thing. It's so good and so important. This is how the gospel gets shared, right? And, this is... and remember, you're not doing it in your own power. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you'll be my witnesses. Well, this has been so good. Thanks for uh, sharing this, your great book, Unshockable Love. It's a, it's a wonderful guide to how to engage people for Christ. Thank you. Well, thanks. Man, I love that conversation with John Burke. He shared such incredible stories about the simple ways we can share Christ with those around us. And I think we just need to keep our eyes and ears open and our hearts too to put the love of Christ into action. And I sometimes use the word orthopraxy. There's really two, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is speaking the truth. And I think we as a culture for you know, decades have been really good at telling people what the truth of the scripture is, etc. Orthopraxy means the doing of the word. And that's the roll up your sleeves and get going, engage people, culture, etc. And that's the harder end, in my opinion, because it, it does take time. It takes thought. It takes, you know, maybe even a little bit of planning. I have a friend named Bill, and he told me a great story. He and I were playing golf one day, and he said, Jim, you know what I do every morning? I just sit up on the edge of the bed. And I say, Lord, Bill here reporting for duty. And he said it just it kind of sets his heart and his mind into the service mentality of, Lord, I'm here to do your will today. And I think that's a great way to start the day. The main thing we need to remember is to approach people with love, uh, opening doors to the lost instead of putting barriers up that keep them from Christ. Um, you know, if your personality is such that you are putting those barriers down, I think you're in trouble spiritually. We got to do everything we can do to open the doors and kind of let the wind of the Holy Spirit breathe through that relationship. We've got to guard our hearts from becoming like the Pharisees. Man, that New Testament, there's two billboards in the New Testament, salvation through Christ and Christ alone, and don't become one of those religious legalistic people known as the Pharisees and the scribes. And we as Christians have the opportunity to learn from the mistakes of the Pharisees and hold the door to the kingdom wide open and encourage the lost, as John Burke does, to come as they are, but don't stay that way. And I strongly encourage you to get a copy of John's book, Unshockable Love, How Jesus Changes the World Through Imperfect People. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, please support our efforts to help believers make an impact for Christ and have conversations with people who don't yet know him. Uh, when you donate to the podcast with a gift of any amount, I'll send you a copy of John's book, Unshockable Love. The link is in the episode notes. As we go on this journey together, interacting with the culture, one of my favorite things about the podcast is getting to hear from you and uh, addressing some of the questions that I can. I can't obviously take them all, but I love this interaction and this two-way dialogue. Um, I will take your questions that relate to the topics discussed for the inbox segment. And here's a question from Tanya. She said, how do I share my faith with my coworkers who think Christianity is all about the do's and don'ts? You know, one of the things I remember working in the business world and I would do things, that, you know, I think back on it, it was pretty bold. I'd be, I think, 27, 28 years old. I'm out to a, a lunch, a work lunch with a bunch of other older men and women typically. And I'd say before lunch came, hey, do you guys mind if I just say a blessing? Now, that was bold, and a lot of people went, ooh, and they'd put their cigarette out and put their drink to the side. But, you know, nobody ever said no. 
So that was just maybe a really bold way to do it and just a blessing for the time together and new friendships being formed, nothing that costs them anything. But there's also just being a good witness in the workplace, making sure that you're setting the framework for you to talk eventually about what you believe. But I'll tell you what, when you work hard and you do your job and you're honest and straightforward, it does lay a great foundation for people to open their hearts up to you and talk with you. So I do all those things right away. And then the do's and don'ts, you can just, you know, educate yourself on those things um, in terms of what people say. And there are many, many apologists that'll load you up with that. I'm thinking of people like Josh McDowell or his son, Sean McDowell. Uh, both of them do a wonderful job uh, in their resources, their books, equipping you to respond to questions. You can find those uh, anywhere. I think Focus on the Family would even have some of those resources for you. Um, returning to John Burke's three things a person needs to uh, come to Christ, one was to meet a Christian who is actually uh, like Jesus toward them. I mean, they're living an authentic life. Two, to get to know a tribe of people. That would be hopefully a church where people, again, are authentic and they feel, you know, not comfy there, but they feel the people are in their corner and, and really pulling for them as a center. Third is to have a safe space to learn about truth and scripture. Again, that's a small group study or a church that is doing exactly that. Uh, Tanya, thanks for your question. Now, if you have a question, please send it in. Go to our website and click the button on the side of the show page to leave us a voicemail. And if I use your question on the podcast, I'll send you a copy of my book, Refocus, Living a Life That Reflects God's Heart. Thanks for joining me for Refocus with Jim Daly. Be sure to like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, check out my conversation with Dr. Oz Guinness on spiritual renewal in America. Because what we pass on to our children is the key to identity and to continuity. Mm. And so you're back to the dining table. The family, this is you, Jim, <laughs> the focus on the family. The family is the key to the American future. Without the family, there will be no freedom. That's on our next Refocus with Jim Daly. It can be challenging to inspire your community to see life the way God sees it. So what's the solution? Well, on June 15th, Focus on the Family is hosting Sea Life 24. And no matter where you are or who you are, you can be a part of this free event with speakers like Ben and Kirsten Watson and real stories about choosing life. Sea Life 24 will inspire you to translate your faith into action. Register today at sealife24.org.